welcome our wonderful speaker today. Dr. Glenn F. Williams is a senior historian at the U.S. Army Center of Military History at Fort McNair in Washington, D.C. He's a retired Army officer who entered public history as a second career. His previous positions included serving as the senior historian of the National Museum of the U.S. Army, historian for the American Battlefield Protection Program of the National Park Service in Washington, curator and historian of the USS Constellation Museum, and assistant curator of the Baltimore Civil War Museum, President Street Station. He's the author of several wonderful books on military history, including Year of the Hangman, George Washington's Campaign Against the Iroquois, which received the Thomas J. Fleming Award for Outstanding Revolutionary War Book of 2005, USS Constellation, A Short History of the Last All-Sail Warship Built by the U.S. Navy, also The Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, Two Interpretive Maps. His latest book, which we're here to discuss today, is entitled Dunmore's War, The Last Conflict of America's Colonial Era. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. Please join me in welcoming Glenn Williams. Thank you for that kind introduction and all of you for being here and to the Virginia Historical Society for inviting me and the Virginia Society of Colonial Wars for co-sponsoring. Uh, I have to take my hat off to the Society of Colonial Wars. Uh, they have been particularly uh, supportive throughout this project. Uh, I spoke before the book was published. I got a chance to speak to the New York Society and the New Jersey societies of colonial wars as well uh, about the state of my research at this time. Uh, just one uh, note about the, the image. If none of you have ever seen that before, the, the, the art is by Pamela Patrick White of White Historic Art, and it's called Reprisal. And uh, as we go through, you might get an idea of why I really wanted that, that image on, on the cover art. Now, what do we know about Dunmore's War? Uh, uh, you heard mention that my, my last big outside of work book was, was on the uh, Iroquois campaign of 1779. And people would ask, well, what are you working on now? And I would say uh, Dunmore's War. And I would get one of two responses. Either one, you really do like that obscure stuff. <laughs> or it's about time. Uh, so I thought I'd start off with going through some of the typical uh, misperceptions about, uh, uh, that, that persist about Dunmore's War. Um, you know, you see them up there, nothing more than motivated by racism against native peoples. It was nothing more than a land grab by the colony of Virginia, and that all Indians were peaceful, that Virginians were the aggressors. Uh, that was only a British attempt to uh, divert attention away from the coming revolution. And the biggest one, probably the, the, the one I spent most time in the thesis of the book on, was dispelling the myth that the Virginia militia fought Indian style. And if I don't cover it through the course of the talk, feel free to ask me about it or buy the book and, and read about how I developed that. <laughs> okay, we've, uh, let's talk about a few things, first of all. At the end of the French and Indian War, uh, we're all familiar with the Royal Proclamation of 1763, uh, which basically said, uh, an arbitrary line drawn between the headwaters of all the streams that flow to the Mississippi uh, are reserved to our, the Indians as their hunting ground. Now, has anybody ever read the proclamation? The very next line says, until our future pleasure be known. <laughs> Virginians took this as being temporary. 
It also made a few other uh, pronouncements in the proclamation. One, it, it established four new colonies, East and West Florida, uh, the island of Grenada in the West Indies, and the province of Quebec. Uh, Quebec not being what we know as Canada now entirely. Uh, it is currently, it would be considered what is now Ontario, Quebec, and also the present states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Which colony was given this area and its royal charter? Virginia. So you can see right away that the Virginians are not going to like the, the, the proclamation of 1763. Also, it's at this time where the, there's starting to be constitutional crises in the colonies with the mother country, and we won't go into them today. They can fill up an entire book of their own, uh, but I have them listed up there. And basically what they, uh, it was a, I like to emphasize the fact that it was a constitutional crisis, had not yet risen to the level of rebellion, much less revolution. Uh, so let's just keep that in mind as we go along. And in the, in the resistance to these uh, uh, constitutional violations by the parliament, as the colonists saw it, uh, the, the resistance was led by the colonies of Virginia and Massachusetts. I want to talk a little bit about Lord Dunmore. I'm sure you've all been to, down to Williamsburg and Yorktown, and you see this portrait almost everywhere. Uh, down there, uh, and you know, he's pretty much been vilified, but I would say he's been vilified for what happened after April of 1775, not what happened before. Uh, and just a few things in his, his background. Uh, you've probably seen a caption for this picture that says, Lord Dunmore in the uniform of an officer of the British Scottish, uh, the Scots Guards of the British Army. Well, some of you may be familiar that uh, infantry officers in the British Army wore scarlet coats, not plaid, that the guards were not a Highland regiment, so they wouldn't be wearing kilts, uh, and so this is not that. Uh, I would best describe this as a campaign poster. Um, <laughs> he had this painted after he was elected as a representative peer of Scotland in the House of Lords of the British Parliament. Uh, so that's what this represents. And he liked Americans. Uh, he tried his darndest to get assigned to General Wolfe's uh, uh, army in, the, in North America during the French and Indian War. Um, he also tried to get assigned to the British Army on, on the European continent, too. Uh, but he was never allowed to go beyond Edinburgh. Probably had something to do with his father being involved with the rebellion of 1745. Uh, but uh, he, he never got to go overseas, and he resigned from the Army in 1761. Uh, but he liked Americans. Uh, in fact, um, the, the second of those constitutional crises that were up in the previous slide about the Townsend duties, uh, the reason why, the, well, what led to the Boston Massacre on March 5th, 1770, uh, well, the motion to repeal the Townsend duties uh, was pushed forward in Parliament also on March 5th, 1770. And when it gets to the House of Lords, it's Dunmore that seconds the motion to repeal it saying the Americans, if left to themselves, would soon be quiet. And if you read a lot of Revolutionary War history, you know a lot of historians will describe the period between the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party as the quiet time. So it's kind of, kind of neat that that works that way. And not long after that, in 1770, he gets appointed uh, the royal governor of New York. He goes to New York, and he loves it. 
Okay. Um, remember, this is an era when politicians or political figures or government officials, it's not considered a conflict of interest to make money because of your political office. And he proceeds to delve into that uh, and to, to enrich himself and his family. And he, he states that numerous times. Uh, so he, he really likes New York. And when he gets there, what we would call his uh, inaugural address, uh, he says the Constitution is fixed meaning those constitutional uh, uh, discrepancies with the two, you know, the Stamp Act and the Townsend duties, they've been taken care of and things are good again between the colonies and the mother country. Uh, so he's, he's in, in New York for a few months. And at the time, Lord Bodytot is the governor here in, in Virginia. And he dies while in office and Dunmore is appointed to replace him. Uh, it's seen by the Secretary of State for the Colonies as a promotion because Virginia is the largest, the wealthiest, and most populous of the colonies on mainland North America. But he don't want to leave New York. He drags his feet. He doesn't get to Williamsburg until September of 1771. Uh, and he enjoys pretty much immense popularity once he gets there, uh, which we forget after, uh, after April of 1775. Uh, and he's really interested in westward expansion. Yeah, he's going to make some money himself, but he also sees it as a way of ingratiating himself with Virginians. And expansion is, you know, a product of the Enlightenment. Uh, undeveloped land, uh, wilderness, uh, uninhabited ground uh, is called desert. You know, don't think of the Sahara when you hear desert in the 18th century. Uh, uh, Fincastle County, Virginia was desert. Kentucky was desert. It means nobody lives there and it needs to be improved. Well, how do you improve it? Well, you put up fences, you plow fields, you plant corn, you plant wheat, maybe tobacco, you build a house, you build a mill to grind the, the, the grain into, some, into flour, you uh, build ferries and bridges, and next thing you know, you have a, a courthouse and a, and a tavern and a town and so forth. That's how you improve the ground. Uh, so, uh, again, some of the things we've already covered, but almost immediately after the 1763 proclamation line is drawn, it's out of date. Uh, it's realized that there are tens of thousands of people already living west of it, particularly uh, in the western part of the Virginia colony. And the two Indian uh, uh, polities that we're talking about that are just west, oh, darn it. I am a Luddite. The Indian polities that sit on the western boundary of the English colonies in the north are six nations of, of Iroquois, and in the south, the Cherokee. Uh, and these have to be dealt with. And if you could go back to the, the proclamation of 1763, that although it says the land west of this line is reserved to the Indians as their hunting ground, uh, any further acquisition of land has to be done, one, as part of a treaty, to executed by an official of the king. So the lords of the Board of Trade tell the two Indian superintendents, Sir William Johnson in the Northern Department and Colonel John Stewart in the Southern Department to negotiate with the two big Indian polities, execute a treaty, and see about moving the line open to settlement a little bit west. Now let's talk about, the, it's actually the second one, but we'll talk about the Treaty of Fort Stanwix first. Uh, the Six Nations, presumed to talk for all the Indian nations and tribes 
that live on the south bank of the Ohio. And we can go into that later during the question and answer period if you want. They claim this by right of conquest. So at the Treaty of Fort Stanwix, they make the treaty with Sir William Johnson to cede a, a, a big chunk of land to the British Crown. And the treaty line goes from Fort Stanwix, which is where Rome, New York is now, down to the Delaware River, then down to, across to the Susquehanna, the west bank, of, I mean the west branch of the Susquehanna, to the Allegheny, and then down the Allegheny till it turns into the Ohio, and then down the Ohio till it has its confluence with the Tennessee River, which is here off the map. Quite a bit of ground. In the South, John Stewart executes the hard labor uh, uh, treaty with the Cherokee. Uh, that one isn't a, as bold a, of a change. Uh, that treaty line basically follows the 1763 proclamation until it gets to the Virginia-North Carolina boundary, then goes to the headwaters of the Kanawha River, down the Kanawha to the, to the Ohio. You can see that's not much of a change and does not make the Virginians very happy. It also does not intersect well with the land ceded by the Iroquois. So Stuart uh, convenes the Treaty of Lock Harbor. They execute another treaty. This time the, the, the boundary will be moved from on the uh, North Carolina-Virginia line west to the Long Island on the Holston River, and then a straight line north and east to the mouth of the Kanawha. A little bit more land ceded to Virginia, but not a whole lot more. Then it's decided by both the Cherokee and the British that this land, first of all, isn't really good for hunting. Second of all, you can't really tell if you cross into what's still reserved to the Indians because there are no natural barriers that you can point to to say that marks the boundary. So they renegotiate the boundary in 1771. Some Cherokee chiefs with Virginia commissioners and Indian, uh, uh, Indian department officers, and they move the boundary again from the Long Island on the Holston to the headwaters of the Louisa or Kentucky River and then down to the Ohio. So now this area, what had been reserved to the Indians as their hunting ground, is now part of Virginia. Uh, let's talk about Lord Dunmore as the governor for a little bit. Uh, militarily, he's the commander-in-chief of the colony. Uh, he has the authority to appoint officers, both of the militia and if the colony raised what are called provincial regulars, he also uh, appoints those officers. Uh, he can raise as many regiments as he wants. He can march them anywhere within his colony, within his colony, not outside of it. Uh, I, yeah, I, I get a kick out of every time I'm talking to somebody and say, well, my great-great-whatever joined the militia in 1773. Well, if he was in the militia in 1773, he didn't join the militia. When he turned 18, he was in the militia. <laughs> now, you could join a company to go on an expedition for active duty, uh, but if they didn't get enough volunteers, then the governor could draft you. Okay? Uh, the, the, the militia was more uh, like a pool of available military-age manpower uh, than it was an actual reserve. Uh, he could impress equipment, boats, provisions, anything he wanted, and uh, he usually administered the actual militia's day-to-day -day operations to an officer called the county lieutenant. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, the governor, by his uh, commission as royal governor and uh, his letter of instruction from the Secretary of State for the Colonies, had these, the power of the sword, which covered these. Uh, arm, muster, command, all persons, all white, male, military-age persons, 
in the colony, uh, to defend it from invasions, to suppress rebellions, uh, to pursue enemies out of the colony. Um, he could also establish fortifications for the defense of the colony, either on the frontier or on the seacoast. Uh, he could proclaim martial law in wartime, and also in wartime, he could issue letters of mark and reprisal uh, for privateers. Now, he could do whatever he want, call as many guys as he wanted to into active military duty, and go anywhere uh, within the scope of his authority except pay them. Uh, the power of the purse rested with the General Assembly. And like the Parliament in Great Britain, uh, all, and like our own House of Representatives in the Senate, and I'm sure it's like that in the current state of Virginia's uh, government, all revenue bills have to start in the lower house. And that means in colonial Virginia, that would have been the House of Burgesses, just as in the parliament, it was the House of Commons. Uh, they had the power of the purse. Uh, they also wrote the, the law that governed the militia, how it was organized, how it would be disciplined, whether it was in peace or in war, uh, the requirements that uh, the, the citizens had to meet uh, for their military obligations, as well as the Virginia government's responsibilities for maintaining the militia. And mostly, it's, it comes in the form of uh, 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 financial support. Now, I mentioned before about the county lieutenants. These were very key guys. Uh, the county, I mean, the, the colony was divided into counties, plus the two independent boroughs of Williamsburg and Norfolk, and each had a commander-in-chief of its military forces. And in the county, that was called the county lieutenant. And you can see up there, he has a lot of the same responsibilities at the county level as the governor had at the colony level. Uh, he had to make sure all his soldiers were provided with arms and ammunition. He had to exercise them regularly uh, and, and so forth. Uh, one thing I like to point out, if you read the laws of Virginia at the time, uh, when they established or what they called erected a colony, the guy that was appointed county lieutenant divided the county into 10 companies by the distribution of the military age white male population. And those were companies. Uh, and they were done geographically. So say the company in Hanover might have had 300 guys in it, uh, where the company in West Point might have only had 70 or something like that. But it was still a company. And the uh, county lieutenant recommended, appointed the captains to command those companies. And then with those captains, they would uh, select the subalterns, the lieutenant and the ensign in each one of those companies. And they would all receive their commissions from the governor. Then the captains selected the sergeants and the corporals and the musicians and the, and the company clerks. And you couldn't refuse any of those jobs. You know, if, if, if your company commander said, you're going to be a corporal, you couldn't say, no, I'm not, sir. Uh, you got fined. You didn't get paid for going to drill, but you get fined for not doing your job at drill. Um, so, you know, they kind of twisted your arm to be a sergeant or so. Uh, and the companies held what were called private musters once a quarter every three months. Uh, the county as a whole uh, had what was called a general muster uh, once a year, uh, usually in the springtime. I don't know if any of you can read this, but this is an actual commission by a, the county lieutenant of Albemarle County signed by Governor Body. Can, can anybody read who it is? Thomas Jefferson. I don't know about you, I'm a military historian. I would hear that Thomas Jefferson was anti-military, but I've since learned that no, he was just anti-regular. But this is Colonel Thomas Jefferson. And we used to like to say, you know, invincible in liberty, invisible on the battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> 
the militia law. What were the requirements? All white, free males, 18 to 60, were listed. Notice it says listed, not enlisted. Uh, everybody had to have a weapon, uh, a firelock, so a musket or a fowling piece if you lived in, in the, the lower, uh, the low country, or if you lived on the frontier, you could substitute a rifle. Every soldier had to have a cartridge box to carry his ammunition. If you were armed with a rifle, you could substitute a shot pouch and a powder horn. Every soldier had to have a bayonet. And if, it, and if you had a weapon like a rifle that didn't fix a bayonet, then you substituted a tomahawk or a scalping knife uh, and, and, and so forth. Some people were exempt from being in the militia, like ministers of the Church of England and ministers of the Church of England. Uh, <laughs> uh, the president and professors of the College of William and Mary. Uh, some people were exempt from drilling, either by reason of conscience or, or some other reason, but they were still members of the militia. Uh, but other than that, everybody was expected to turn out for a company muster four times a year, that county muster once a year. They got no pay at all unless they were called out for active duty on an alarm or something for at least a week. And I, I like to say they, 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 the, the companies on the frontier were very adept at fighting Indians, and we'll get into that a little later. It wasn't Indian-style fighting. It was a combination of what the British Infantry Doctrine said, fighting irregulars, plus what they learned from Indian allies or while fighting Indian enemies, and then gained through experience in the series of colonial wars leading up to this. But basically, it comes down to the to the, the catchphrase, tactical, uh, strategic offense, but tactical defense. Now, there were some specialized type units in the militia, and we've all heard of them. The first I'll talk about is the Rangers. And they get their name to range or patrol between frontier forts or communities or whatever. How many have seen the Spencer Tracy movie, Northwest Passage? Okay, nothing like that. <laughs> Virginia ranging companies were for frontier defense. Their job was to go out, if it was in wartime, to detect the approach of enemy war parties and either intercept them before they could attack a settlement or go back to the settlement to warn the local militia commander that uh, we're going to be attacked, muster your troops, and then help them repel the enemy, and then maybe pursue them back out uh, of the county. And most of the time, these were raised by, and paid for by their counties, okay? Only if they were called into colonial service did they get paid from, from Williamsburg. Uh, and they could either be drafted or they could voluntarily join. Uh, while they were on their active duty, they didn't have to pay county taxes, and they got paid by the county, as I mentioned before. Uh, um, and they were also exempt from going to regular militia drills uh, during that time. And then you had scouts. Now, don't confuse these with the scouts that go ahead of an expedition and look for the bad guys up ahead. Well, those certainly were a type of scout. But when I, the ones I'm talking about here, uh, am I there already? Yeah. Uh, these scouts were also for defense, but close in. They would go out around their communities and look for what they called Indian signs, tracks left by a war party, to detect that there was a war party in the area so they could go back and report to the local militia commander that there's a war party in the area, muster the guys, and then defend the community. And then there were spies. Now, don't think 007. Uh, if you've looked at Samuel Johnson's dictionary for this period, 
one of the main definitions for spy is one who observes an enemy from afar. So this means two or three guys would go out, set up on a mountain where they could look down into an Indian town, and if they were doing a war dance and started painting themselves with war paint, that was a pretty good indication that they were getting ready to go to war, and then you'd go back to the, to the, to, to the militia commander and say the Indians are about to go to war. Or they would set up at a ford, and if they saw a war party crossing the river, and they'd try to get back to the community in time to, to tell the people, you know, be on your guard. Now let's jump ahead a, a little bit. Uh, there's real cultural conflict going on. Okay. Uh, the Indians that lived in this area did not give away their hunting ground. The Six Nations gave it away out from under them. Uh, but they still believe they have the right and the ability to hunt on the ground on the south side of the Ohio. Now, this comes into conflict with cultural perceptions of private property. Uh, a settler that moves in buys a plot of ground, and that's his, and he clears it, and he puts up fences, and he brings in domesticated animals. Indian hunting party comes along, and they're, they, they need to spend the night somewhere, so they're going to build a fire. So the first thing you do is take off the rails off of the farmer's fence. Uh, the domesticated animals have eaten up all the grass, so the deer is scarce, but hey, there's a cow. Uh, kill the cow and butcher it. How do we get back to the uh, back to our town on the north bank of the Ohio? Uh, there's a horse. Uh, to the to the settler, this is theft, robbery. Uh, to the Indian, this was hunting. Uh, uh, so you know the the, the the cultural conflict leads to an increasing level of violence all along the boundary, uh, along the border, until it comes really bad in, in 1774. Uh, I, I won't go into more of that unless you ask me questions about it. But as things get worse and worse, uh, this is Captain John Connolly here. He is the uh, Captain Commandant of uh, Pittsburgh, not under Virginia. Uh, failed to mention that Virginia and Pennsylvania were involved in a boundary dispute over the forks of the Ohio, and this is the Virginia leader in that area. Uh, and as the level of violence increases, it looks like the Shawnees are going to go to war. They are the most hostile. They've always hated the British the most. And, and just as a little aside, uh, um, anybody ever read Conrad Weiser's description of the Indian nations in North America, written like in the 1740s? He, he's, he gives a description that the Six Nations claim all by right of conquest because they defeated all these other nations and brought them into their confederacy and consider them dependents and proceed to dictate to them. He says they defeated the Delaware and they figuratively took off their breech clouts and put petticoats on them. And when they talk harshly to them, they call them women. How's that for a transgender policy? <laughs> when they speak kindly to them, they call them nephews. So that reinforces that superior subordinate relationship and claim dominion over them. And then he says, the Shawnees were never outwardly defeated by the Six Nations, but they scattered them. And then right around the, seven, uh, the second quarter of the eight, 18th century, they allow them to come back on land, the, the, the Iroquois claim as their dominion by right of conquest, and they let them live there. But they, in return for doing that, they claim dominion over them. And then Conrad Weiser writes, for which the Shawnees mortally hate them. So there's a lot of dynamics between the Indian nations in this era at the time. And, and the Shawnees, like I said, are the most hostile to the British. And they're itching for a fight. 
uh, and some uh, settlers fall right into the trap. There's this group called Great House, uh, at a place called Baker's Bottom, uh, led by a guy named Daniel Greathouse that gets together some of his neighbors, about 30 of them. They're not embodied as militia. They, get, they look at the circular saying, be on your guard. It looks like the Indians may be preparing for war, and they assume the war has already started. So they entice some Indians from a Mingo settlement. The Mingos are part of the Six Nations. They're still friendly with the British. They come over and have a party at uh, Baker's Bottom. They proceed to get them drunk, and they heinously murder them, men, women, and children. And among the people they murder are some close family relatives of a guy named Logan, a leading warrior of the Mingo people. He comes back and finds his sister and her unborn baby have been murdered. His niece has been taken, lack of a better word, prisoner. His brother has been murdered and, and some other relatives, and he swears revenge. And he resolves to lead a war party against, oops, darn it against a family named Spicer. If you remember that picture on the cover of the book at the very beginning, that's what this reminds me of, Logan's reprisal on the Spicer family. They had nothing to do with the massacre of his family, but he attacks the, uh, the Spicer family, kills the mother, the father, all the children except two, takes a boy and a girl prisoner and takes them back to Indian country as, as captives. And this pretty much sets off the rest of the, 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 the war. Uh, Great House and his people say, hey, I think we just started a war. And they clear out of the, the, out of the frontier, leaving the, their neighbors to the wrath of the Indians. So the, the, the militia now has to muster for real. The Shawnees, like I said, were itching for a fight all along. And their leader's a chief named Cornstalk. If you've read any about the French and Indian War and Pontiac's Rebellion, he's very active in that, leading raids against the Virginia frontier. Oops, darn it. Yeah, I don't even carry a cell phone. They give me this thing. <laughs> the Mingos led by Logan. Not all the Mingos join the Shawnees. Some stay out of the fight. And they look for allies. And you see some of the other Indian nations that live in the Ohio area that they try to attract as, as uh, uh, allies, even the Six Nations, who they mortally hate. Uh, but uh, again, Indian national interests play into it. The Six Nations benefit the most from that Treaty of Fort Stanwix. They don't want to see it go down the drain. Plus, there are very close relations with the British. In fact, every time the, the Shawnees write something bad about the Six Nations, they also add, and the British. And if they write anything bad about the British, they say, and the Six Nations. So they, you, know, you can see they, there's no love lost there. Now, it's not to say some individual members from these tribes won't join with the Shawnees and the hostile Mingos to fight against the Virginians. But as groups, uh, as tribes or nations, they do not. Sir William Johnson, the Indian superintendent in the Northern Department, tries to resolve things. The biggest, uh, uh, the biggest fear of British, the British government at this period was that there would be a pan-Indian alliance and a general Indian war on the frontier, and they want to prevent it at all, at any cost. So Sir William Johnson, as a representative of the Crown, calls a conference at his estate in the Mohawk Valley. Uh, of course, the uh, uh, Six Nations kind of honcho it because they claim dominion over everybody else. Uh, they tell all the other Indian polities in the, the, the Ohio area not to help the Shawnee. And if you do, you answer to us and all our military, diplomatic, 
economic and political power. If you do anything, help the Virginians, not the Shawnees. They see the Shawnees as kind of recalcitrants. Uh, most of the Delawares remain neutral, although a, a war chief named White Eyes uh, will, will lead a group of scouts for Lord Dunmore during the war. Uh, Gaia Sota, who is a Seneca, who acts as the regional viceroy, for lack of a better word, for the Ohio area, is there to maintain Six Nations authority over all the other Indians. Uh, so the, the Shawnees, the bottom line is they're pretty much isolated except for having some Mingo allies and some of these individual uh, 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 warriors that join them. Dunmore finally calls some of the militia into colonial service. Uh, he gives authority to the county lieutenants to call their men out, uh, uh, to, to have their patrols, ranger patrols start uh, patrolling the frontier, and he'll see about getting them paid by the colonial government, not just their county government, uh, to build forts on the various uh, 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 settlements, uh, maybe send an occasional forward uh, party into Indian country, especially if you're pursuing a war party. So he gives them limited authority to conduct the war on the frontier. Uh, so it, it's, war is, is heating up. This is basically, I don't know how well you can see it from back there. This is the area of conflict for Dunmore's war. Um, here's the Ohio River along here. Uh, Fort Pitt is up here. Uh, um, so the, the area that uh, uh, Logan raided the Spicer farmstead, that would have been a raid around here. Uh, all the attacks, all the fighting takes place on the south bank of the Ohio, basically in Augusta, Body Tot, and Fincastle counties. Mainly a defensive war on the part of the Virginians. There's one small incursion that the, uh, that the Virginians lead, uh, about a 400-man battalion commanded by this man here, Angus MacDonald, uh, that'll cross the Ohio to the north bank and, and, and raid a Shawnee town named Wakatamica on, on the Muskegon River. Uh, didn't really do much. It destroyed some corn, destroyed a town. But it didn't stop the raids on the frontier. Didn't keep the. It, it didn't made no significant impact on how the war was progressing. So yeah, tactically it was a success, but strategically it didn't do anything. Dunmore decides there's only one way to put an end to the war, and that's to take the fight to the enemy. And why, you can see he lists some of the reasons here. In effect, it'll be less expensive. You cannot be strong everywhere at once, so pick where you want to fight. And he's going to fight on the enemy's territory, not in Virginia. He wants to try to break that Confederacy, the military strength of the Confederacy the Shawnees are trying to build, although not very successfully. Uh, he's going to do it using two different divisions, one coming from the north, one coming from the south, that cross into Indian territory and target the principal Shawnee town called Chillicothe uh, on the upper Scioto River. Again, uh, I'll go through it as we're, we're talking more, but basically they will use the strategic offense with the tactical defense. Now, Dunmore asks for the, 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 the General Assembly, the, the authority to raise provincial regulars. And this is where a lot of confusion and some of the secondary sources come in, and, and the General Assembly turns him down. Uh, and they say, well, see, the General Assembly didn't want to support Dunmore in this war. Uh, well, 
the, the lower house of assembly has to pay for it, and they have to tax their constituents to pay for it. And with provincial regulars, as soon as they swear themselves in and become member of the provincial army, they have to be paid, and they get paid until they're duly discharged. Uh, the, the Speaker of the House of Burgesses tells the governor, you already have the military authority to call out the militia. You know, ulterior motive here. You know, the House of Burgesses doesn't have to raise money to pay the militia until after they're finished doing what they're doing. They get paid in arrears. Uh, so it's cheaper. And they get, as soon as they do their job, they're discharged. So they're much cheaper than, than regular. So don't be confused when you see something that says the General Assembly didn't want to support Dunmore's war. Dunmore then decides uh, that he's going to form two different forces, one that will come from the north. Some of them gather at Winchester, and then they split off. Some march from there to Wheeling, where they'll, they'll wait for the rest of them, while Dunmore, with some of them, go up to, to Pittsburgh. They gather up the rest of the men and equipment they need, then they come down the Ohio to Wheeling, uh, where they rejoin. From there, they'll go down the Ohio to uh, just opposite the Little Kanawha River, on the north bank uh, at the mouth of the Hockocking River where they build Fort Gower, a forward supply base, and from there move into Indian country. And, and here they're talking about, he's got about 1,200 guys. The other wing of the army is going to muster at a place called, well, they'll, they'll call it Camp Union, but it's where uh, Lewisburg, West Virginia is now. Uh, 1,300 men from the counties you see there. Uh, they will march to the, uh, uh, to the keep forgetting the name of the river. Uh, they'll, they'll march to the canal from there, uh, where they'll build boats and a uh, uh, mouth of the Elk River, where they'll build a supply base and build boats, and then from there move down the canal to Point Pleasant at the mouth of the canal where it flows into the Ohio. From there, cross over the Ohio into Indian country and join up with Dunmore just outside of Chillicothe. So the important thing of all that is that we're talking about 2,500 men in the Virginia Army uh, going from, coming from the north to, uh, uh, to Fort Gower and then moving inland to Chillicothe and Fort Union, uh, Camp Union down the Elk River to the Kanawha down to Point Pleasant, then crossing into the uh, North Bank and moving to Chillicothe. So that's the basic plan. Oops, I get a little ahead of myself. Um, what are the Indians doing at this time, and how many people do they have? Cornstalk can muster about 800 to 1,000 warriors. You saw what the Virginians had. So let's say he's outnumbered three to one, and they're coming for him. He does the only thing he can do. He decides that he's going to first attack Colonel uh, Andrew Lewis's wing of the army at Point Pleasant turn around, and then attack the wing marching with Dunmore outside of Chillicothe. He's outnumbered in either case, but he's counting on the element of surprise. He wants to fight a typical Indian battle of annihilation, to attack early in the morning, drive his enemy, some of them into the river, where he has people posted on the opposite bank to pick them off as they're trying to swim or drown or the others try to go back the way they came, and he can hound them all the way back for at least a few miles, and then turn around and turn his attention to the wing that's traveling with Dunmore. It's the only thing he can do. So he leads his 800 to 1,000 warriors. They come down, they cross the Ohio north from Point Pleasant, 
uh, along a, a, a stream called Old Town Creek. There's an abandoned Indian village there. They, they established their, their, their camp there. Uh, and this is uh, the British, um, the, the, oh darn it. The Virginians reached Point Pleasant about the 6th of October. Two march orders of them, okay? There's three march orders altogether. One more is still a couple days march behind, bringing the cattle and the pack horses. Uh, some pack horses and cattle are here, but he's basically got two lines of Virginia militia, the Body Tot County line and the Augusta County line, and they established their camp here on the 6th. Scouts have told them that they saw a couple hunters, but nothing much to be concerned about. There are no Indians in the area. So they go to bed on the 9th of October. On the morning of the 10th of October, the, the drums are beating assembly. But since Lewis has told his commanders that we'll slaughter the poor cattle first, some of the company commanders decide that they're going to supplement their men's rations with game. So two companies from Augusta County that are attached to the body tot line here send out two groups of two hunters each into this area hunting for deer or some other kind of game. They're about 100, 200 yards apart. One of the two-man hunting teams runs into an open field where when they get back, they report that they saw an acre of ground that you couldn't make your way across without stepping on an Indian. The other one sees the Indians and are immediately fired upon. One of the hunters gets killed. The other one makes it back. The two other guys also run back to the camp, spreading the alarm. They run past the pickets, who are really in close to the camp, giving the password. They go to the, uh, the, cap, the camp site of the officer of the guard, reporting what they saw. Like I said, they already beat assembly, uh, or reveille, rather. Now they're beating assembly into arms. Colonel Lewis comes out to find out what's going on. The two scouts and the officer of the guard try to relate to him what they saw. Colonel Lewis, Andrew Lewis, thinks that what they have out there is a scouting party, a big scouting party, but a scouting party nonetheless. He calls his two principal subordinate officers in, his brother, Colonel Charles Lewis, the commander of the Augusta County Militia, and Colonel William Fleming, the commander of the Body Tot County Militia. The biggest mistake Andrew Lewis makes in the entire campaign, probably in his entire military career, is right here. He tells the two colonels, Muster the first 150 men out of your two lines that are ready, put them under the command of your six most experienced captains, and go see what's out in front of us. And that's what they do. 150 men, 300 men all together, marching in two columns. The Augusta County, 150 men uh, along Crooked Creek on the east side, and 150 from Body Tot and some from, uh, from uh, uh, Fincastle County on the left uh, along the Ohio. Uh, they march out about a mile from camp, and as they come in, it's, it's fairly open area in, at this point, and both columns come under fire. The first few men in each column go down immediately. Colonel Charles Lewis, commanding the Augusta County line, is wound, mortal, uh, mortally wounded at this point, makes his way back to the camp where he'll die. Colonel William Fleming takes three shots, seriously wounded. He's helped back to the camp but he'll actually survive. So that there are six, darn it. The six most experienced company commanders with 300 men out here fighting for their lives, trying to establish a continuous line all across the peninsula, trying their best, but the Indians at the same time trying to surround the heads of both columns at the same time and, and do away with them. 
They're trying to fight a battle of annihilation. Back here, Colonel Andrew Lewis sees what's going on. The Virginians on the firing line are being pushed back to the point where the people behind the breastwork they've erected at the camp can see the battle going on, and it's getting closer and closer to them. He calls together the lieutenants of the companies of those captains that went out ahead uh, in the first two columns to get the rest of their, com their companies together, along with two or three other uncommitted companies, and he sends them forward under the command of John Field. John Field, his permanent rank in the militia is colonel of the Culpeper County Militia, but he raised a, a corps of three companies, so he's only on the expedition as a, in the rank of major. But uh, with, with his brother Charles and, and with uh, Fleming seriously wounded, he restores him to the rank, John Field to the rank of colonel, and puts him in charge, and he leads about 250 men forward to plug the gap between the two lines of the Virginia militia and try to stabilize the firing line here. You have now about 800 Indians on one side and five or 600 Virginians fighting it out here in a real slugfest. The line finally does get stabilized, but, but, but uh, Field is killed in the process and a captain has to take over the fighting that's going on here. Andrew Lewis has three other companies, and the Indians are going to try to send some uh, warriors down Crooked Creek to come in behind the camp, and he sends three companies to Cro the Crooked Creek, and they stop that advance there by the Indians. Lewis only has two uncommitted companies now. He's got the one commanded by his, his oldest son, John, who he keeps as a mobile reserve, and the company that was the guard company from the night before. And together with all the sick, lame, and lazy, uh, and guys on sick call and civilian cattle drivers and all, they strengthen this wall here in case the, the, these guys fighting here have to retreat back there. They'll have some place to retreat to and soldiers retreat behind. Finally, the tide starts to turn and the Indians start to pull away. They, and they pull to this wooded area here. The Virginians retake some of the land that, that they gave up in the early part of the battle, but they're not going to be foolish enough to make a frontal attack on Indians entrenched up there on that high ground. As the day wears on, they start seeing warriors dragging off dead and wounded fellow Indians off of the, off of the battlefield, either burying the dead in shallow graves or throwing them into the Ohio or rafting their wounded across the Ohio River. And by nightfall, the rest of the Indian Army withdraws back to the north bank of the Ohio and back towards Chillicothe. Just as the battle is ending, that third march order I told you about, commanded by Captain William, uh, Colonel William uh, Christian, arrives with about three, three to 500 reinforcements. And, and the Virginians kind of, uh, now they hold the battlefield. The Indians have retreated, so they're able to claim victory. Uh, it is a illustration of the Battle of Point Pleasant. Don't know how really accurate it is, but it does show that some Virginians are fighting in ranks and some Virginians are fighting from behind trees and rocks and things like that. So it was a real pill-mill battle, and it turned in from a battle of annihilation that the Indians wanted to fight to a battle of attrition, which they did not want to fight, so they retreat. Cornstalk finds out that he is in the process of attacking and getting bogged down in a battle of attrition that Dunmore, with the rest of the Virginia Army, is marching up the Hockhocking River and has reached Pickaway Plains, just outside of his 
his, his, his principal town of Chillicothe. When they get there, they establish a, a fortified camp called Camp Charlotte with breastworks around it. Cornstalk gathers his leaders together and says, we have a decision to make. Neither alternative is very promising. We can, if we want to continue the fight, we can kill our women and children ourselves, put our town to the, the torch, because we know that's what the Virginians are going to do if we lose the battle, and then proceed to attack the Virginians at Camp Charlotte, fighting behind fortifications in cohesive volleys of musketry as the Indians attack across an open ground. Not the type of battle the Indians want to fight, exactly the type of battle the Virginians want to fight. Cornstalk convinces him the best thing we can do is sue for peace. I will go talk to Dunmore myself, and we'll see what kind of terms we can get. I don't want to do that yet. Cornstalk meets with Dunmore, and the terms are surprisingly lenient. The Virginians demand that the Indians respect the Ohio River as the line between settlement and the land reserved to the Indians, just as the Treaty of 1768 at Fort Stanwix said. They must return all the captives they took, not only in Dunmore's War, but any they still had not repatriated since Pontiac's Uprising and the French and Indian War, if they have them. Return any horses that they stole on raids on the Virginia side. Leading up until then, the, Virginia, uh, the, the Indians kind of preferred to deal with traders from the Pennsylvania side. Dunmore says, Virginia is now your most favored trading nation. You'll trade with our traders. You'll reopen the, the Ohio to, to commerce. And the last thing, probably the only one that was somewhat draconian, is he demands that they turn over six hostages, chiefs or sons of chiefs. Now, why do you do this? Well, mid-18th century battles with the Indians, if they were on the losing end of a battle, it was not unusual to say, hey, let's have an armistice, and we'll meet in six months to hammer out the real treaty. Well, to keep them from using this armistice as a way to extricate themselves from a losing battle, you demand hostages, chiefs to make sure they show up at the treaty that they'll conclude at Fort Pitt in the spring of 1775. And this pretty much ends uh, the, the fighting. Some of the Mingos don't want to give up. Some want to continue fighting. Logan tries to make a break for it. He's tracked, tracked down by uh, Captain William Crawford and his militia company. Along with them is a John Gibson, who is the father of his niece, that is being held hostage by the Virginians, who translates for them. How many have read uh, uh, Jefferson's uh, notes on, on the current state of Virginia, or have read Logan's Lament somewhere? Uh, it is touted by Jefferson as being an example of superb Indian oratory. Some people doubt that Logan really said it. Some people say, if you read it, it kind of reads like the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> In effect, though, it ends the war. Logan decides he will fight no more from this point on. And the army is pretty much discharged. Some of the officers meeting at Camp Gower before they're sent home come up. We've heard the, the, the camp, the, the Fort Gower reserve resolves, uh, which pretty much thanked Dunmore for leading this war, uh, leading Virginia in this war for no other purpose than the true interest of this country, this country being Virginia. The Virginians make their way home with the militia. 
Dunmore returns to Williamsburg as capital. He's the hero. He's given balls and feasts. He's presented proclamations of thanks and everything else. And he's the hero of the day. And then he sits down at his desk at the palace in Williamsburg to go through his email. I mean, his mail. <laughs> and waiting for him is a long letter from Lord Dartmouth, his boss, the Secretary of State for the Colonies. And it pretty much says, where the hell have you been for the past six months? Uh, you've been out starting a war we didn't need to fight, fighting Indians we don't want to fight. There's been a general congress going on in Philadelphia. You probably can't even tell me which people from your colony attended. There's been things happening up in Boston that you've probably been ignoring all this time. What the heck's going on, Dunmore? Uh, he kind of blows it off. <laughs> uh, Dunmore remains a very popular governor in Virginia until April of 1775, and we know what happened at the magazine there. He calls the General Assembly back into session in, in June. Uh, top on his list is getting a treaty to make that uh, treaty at Camp Charlotte permanent by negotiating with Indians up at Camp uh, Fort Pitt, getting the soldiers paid and all those people that provided supplies and all, getting them reimbursed for what they provided the Army and things like that. But the Revolutionary War has started, and things do not go well. We all know that on the 8th of June, Dunmore sends his family home, and he removes his capital to the deck of HMS Foey in the York River. And that is a story for another day. So was it motivated by racism? I think it was more of a clash of cultures, fought mainly as a land grab by the settlers. They, the, Virginia made no further claim on Shawnee land, other than what was decided in the Treaty of Fort Stanwix. Uh, was Virginia the aggressor? I think not. Were all the Indians peaceful? I, the Shawnee were itching for a fight for quite a few years. Uh, was an attempt to divert attention from what was the coming revolution? Yeah, Dunmore was oblivious to most of it. Uh, myths about how the militia fought, not Indian style. So, without, unless you have any other, unless you have any questions, this concludes my talk. Thank you very much. <laughs> Dunsmore and perhaps other governors use royal British troops and officers and how did they interact with the county lieutenants? Well, Dunsmore was an artist that did all the Revolutionary War paintings that hang in the uh, Saint at Francis Tavern now. Uh, Dunmore, the royal governor of Virginia, had no British regulars at his disposal. Uh, the last regulars left Fort Pitt in 1772 and marched from there to Philadelphia. So he only had militia at his disposal. Uh, the General Assembly would not allow him to raise provincial regulars, as I mentioned, so he relied solely on militia. Uh, you won't see any British regulars answering to Dunmore's orders until the spring of 1775. Does that answer your question? If you didn't hear the question, were any of the militia paid with land grants? No, they weren't. Uh, well, at least that wasn't the, uh, the intent. Um, the militia law had expired in the, the summer of 1773. 
but the, the, the General Assembly was prorogued, so it remained in effect until the, the, the Assembly was back in session and they could either uh, uh, repeal or, or continue or write a new one. Uh, and when the convention took over governing Virginia from Richmond, uh, the General Assembly voted to pay the soldiers who were on the Indian expedition with Lord Dunmore at the same rate as they were paying militia and state troops to fight the British. Uh, now that the Revolutionary War had started, but at least at that point, they were only paid for their service, not with land grants. Now, some of them had, uh, there were quite a few veterans of the Seven Years' War among them, and they had land patents that they earned for fighting in the Seven Years' War, but they didn't get new ones for Dunmore's War. So Yes, sir. Maybe this is a rather minor point, but I grew up in the Pittsburgh area, so I'm wondering if the boundary was the Ohio River, how did that affect the area right west of Pittsburgh? Was that supposed to remain Indian territory, or did this all start farther down the river than, than Pittsburgh? Okay, good question. I kind of answered half of it earlier when Virginia's territory went in kind of like an opening vector from the coast, it was supposed to go from coast to coast, but included what we now consider Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if you're familiar with Pennsylvania's charter to William Penn, it said five degrees of longitude from the Delaware River. Now the problem is, do you measure the five degrees of longitude from the mouth of the Delaware? or from where Philadelphia is, or from where the Delaware Water Gap is. So it could be a variance of up to 60 miles. The area was always considered Virginia by Virginians. Why was Washington sent to build a fort at the Forks of the Ohio by Governor Dinwiddie? Because it was Virginia. Uh, uh, the Pennsylvanians, when they established Westmoreland County, they proceeded to interpret the five degrees of longitude as including the forks of the Ohio. So that's how the, the, the uh, um, boundary dispute came into being. Uh, the Fort Stanwyck's treaty line that I, uh, that I talked about before, uh, when it reaches the Allegheny, it reaches the Allegheny just upriver from where Catanning is. So that takes into account all that area of the forks of the Ohio as being open to settlement by the Stamp Fort Stanwix Treaty of 1768. Thank you. Could you address the term, the, this was the first battle of the revolution, and <laughs> also the friction, the friction between Lewis and I totally disagree with the first battle of the Revolutionary War sobriquet put on the Battle of Point Pleasant. Virginia militia, colonial militia, called into service by the royal governor, paid for by the colonial government. If you read their correspondence between the officers, they all include the salutation in His Majesty's service. The first couple lines of the Fort Gower resolves includes thanking Dunmore for having leading the troops in nothing but the best interest of this country, 
Virginia, and to toast King George III. Remember at this time, the king was not the problem. Everybody was loyal to the king. The king sat above parliament the way he sat upon, uh, above each one of the 13 general assemblies of the colonies. If you read the primary documents of the Battle of Lexington and Concord, they usually refer to the British troops, not as British troops, not as redcoats, not His Majesty's soldiers, but ministerial soldiers. It was the ministry that was doing things in the king's name that if he only knew, he would set things aright. So the king was not the problem. 1774, the Battle of Point Pleasant takes place on the 10th of October. The first Continental Congress is meeting in Philadelphia at the same time. On the 10th of October, they are still discussing the plan of union. It has not yet risen to rebellion, much less revolution. If you read the, some of the letters from the soldiers that wrote back, they are talking about doing this for the, the glory of King George. So I, I totally reject that it was the first battle of the Revolutionary War, despite what Mrs. Poppenberger wants to believe. Uh, the, the relationship between Andrew Lewis and Dunmore. Uh, Lewis was always seen as probably the person that knew the most about military and Indian affairs on the, on the frontier by not only everybody in the General Assembly, but the governor, too. He was relied on. Uh, he was the one. Dunmore placed him in charge of the southern wing of the Army. That's why William Fleming, who was also from Body Tot County, has to command the Body Tot line, because uh, uh, Andrew Lewis, the, the county lieutenant of Body Tot, is the commander-in-chief of the expedition. Ironically, he'll lead the Virginia forces against Dunmore in July of 1776 when Dunmore's holed up in Gwen's Island, but that's still off in the future. Um, Virginians are pretty still loyal subjects of the king. Even when Dunmore dissolves the General Assembly in June of 1774, their proclamation says, as loyal and obedient subjects of King George III, it says, it says nothing rebellious. They're only protesting an act of parliament. Does that answer your question? <laughs>